Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Light Into My Path podcast. I am your host, Howard Sides. Uh, let's start off wishing everyone a happy Thanksgiving. Um, we got together yesterday for that, so I hope you had a safe one and a blessed one. Uh, today we're going to continue our study in the book of Revelation, chapter 20. And let's see, we made it through verse 1, so <laughs> that's where we are, verse 2. Uh, now, <clears throat> excuse me, chapter 20 itself, uh, the title of it is The Final Woes Are Described. The Final Woes Are Described. And the first section here, verses 1 through 3, uh, describes for us the great chain, the great chain. And so we're kind of in the middle of that thought there, which verse 1 just took up um, pretty much an entire podcast all on its own as we broke it down. So uh, we'll read verses 1 through 3 again and then uh, focus on verse 2 where we are. Okay, Revelation chapter 20. And verse 1 says, And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled, and after that, he must be loosed a little season. Okay, so verse 2, that first phrase, and he laid hold on. Uh, laid hold on is the Greek word kratio. Kratio, K-R-A-T-E-O. Now, this word means to be strong, mighty, uh, to be master over, to rule over, to prevail, or to get possession of, uh, to firmly uh, hold fast. Now, this angel, under God's orders and authority, will have the strength and the power to grab Satan without him being able to escape. Uh, now, considering who the adversary is here, uh, you know, we like to think that he has a, a, an immense amount of power, which, of, now if we went up against him, he does, but against God, uh, it's not really that great. Uh, but we'll get into that a little bit later on. But just um, know that this angel has the authority and the power from God uh, to grab a hold of Satan. And Satan can't do anything about it. Okay, now the world has a great fascination uh, with the capture of what we call notorious criminals. As a matter of fact, there's even several TV channels which are dedicated to this very thing. Uh, but some of the uh, criminals and some of the channels that come to mind uh, that we uh, are so captivated by, one is Charles Manson. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, I remember uh, the, the arrest and the trial of O.J. Simpson, if you remember that, the white Bronco going down the highway and all of that uh, incident around that. Uh, there's also... Uh, Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber. Uh, there's Jeffrey Dahmer. Uh, that was pretty sadistic. I mean, I mean, there's many older ones, but that's some of the current ones. But uh, I think um, 
I forget who it is, but somebody just made a movie or a miniseries, I think, about uh, Jeffrey Dahmer. Uh, a little bit of the history there. Uh, another one would be Saddam Hussein. If you remember that, of course, now I took part in Desert Storm and Desert Shield uh, and all that. So uh, that was rather captivating to me uh, to see that. Uh, some of the channels and some of the TV shows that are dedicated to this thing. Of course, there's True Crime TV. Uh, there's Hallmark Drama, which maybe doesn't focus so much on the evil side of it as it just gets into the drama behind it, like mysteries and that sort of thing. Uh, there's the show America's Most Wanted, uh, which when you think about it, that that's a pretty successful uh, show in the fact that uh, this guy, I forget his name, but he, he introduces the cases and many of them, by getting nationwide attention, uh, have actually ended up solving the crimes through through the help of exposing the the case to a national TV audience, uh, which is pretty uh, ingenious idea, really. Uh, then, of course, there's the notorious cops that follows the uh, uh, police departments around on, on their duties during the day and most especially during the night and some of the cases that they uh, come across and that sort of thing. Uh, then there's the TV show Blue Bloods. There's the TV show FBI. And of course, the FBI now has split up into three parts, uh, which one's FBI Most Wanted, FBI International, and I'm sure they could just keep on and on and on with that. Uh, very similar to that. Uh, actually, uh, previous to that, I would have to say would be the CSI. Uh, CSI has split off into multiple levels, I think. Uh, if you ask me, I think CSI had its start in the, the very popular TV show JAG. I don't know this for a fact, but it is just what I'm thinking. Uh, then from JAG, there became the uh, NCIS. Uh, then there became CSI and CSI Las Vegas, CSI Florida or Miami, I think it was. And then uh, all the other monikers behind it. Uh, and then, of course, uh, the one that I really like is Monk. Uh, who is a detective with a very uh, unique personality, a uh, very strange individual, but he has an uncanny ability to uh, solve these crimes uh, by looking at things that we just normally don't see. And it kind of reminds you of Sherlock Holmes. Uh, so anyway, the point is that the world as a whole has a great fascination with, with the capture of notorious criminals or, or crime solving or watching at these mystery channels and things like that. But no apprehension in the history of the world will be able to compare to this one. When that Satan grabs a, uh, when that angel grabs a hold of Satan, uh, there's never going to be a, uh, a TV show dedicated to it. Uh, there's not going to be an international news channel that, that uh, films it. But there's never going to be one more important than that one. Now, Satan tried to imprison Jesus in a tomb, but he couldn't. Here, God has no problem restraining Satan, and this incarceration is not for punishment, but restraint, because we will see later that God still has a reason and a purpose for releasing Satan once more. All right, the next phrase, the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan. Now, these are four names, all that describe a specific characteristic of the devil or of Satan, which, of course, are two of the names that we were given for him. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, dragon. 
Uh, now, dragon symbolizes his horrible cruelty and villainy. And you say, well, where do you see that? I, I'm like, well, you read your Bible lately, okay? Uh, the old serpent uh, symbolizes his maliciousness, his guile, and deception. Uh, the title devil symbolizes his being the arch tempter of man. And then the name Satan symbolizes his being the accuser of the brethren and the one who opposed Christ and his people. Now, Albert Barnes stated that the idea here is not to identify Satan by listing these four attributes or characteristics of him, uh, as much as it is to state that whatever form he takes, it is always the same being and that this personage is the one being arrested. Uh, James Knox, in his uh, uh, commentary of the book of Revelation, he says, and I quote, All his names are given here that we might know that all his power is broken. All his devices are brought to naught. All his plans destroyed. End quote. And I think that wraps it up in a nutshell. When they grab a hold of Satan, uh, the whole entire force of evil is being contained. And of course, we can't really understand what that means because we've always been since our birth in the presence of sin we don't know what it's like to be without the influence or presence of sin around us that's just the way it is now uh this next phrase and bound him now bound is the greek word dio d-e-o it means like what you would think it means to bind or to be in bonds or to tie now uh this generic angel and i say generic angel because it's not said to be a mighty angel or a strong or strong angel it just says uh uh an angel and i saw an angel just a plain old <laughs> there's nothing plain about him you know but i'm just saying <laughs> compared to other angels it's just a regular old angel uh he's not said to be mighty or strong but he's able to bind satan with no mention of any struggle this speaks clearly of the great authority this otherwise normal angel has due to the task. In other words, he is bid by God to do this task, and he's given the, the whatever the means to do it. Now, this could also be Christ adding insult or injury by specifically sending a normal angel instead of one from the more well-known or powerful ranks of angels. Uh, and, of course, a couple come off the top of your head. Michael. Uh, Gabriel, uh, you know, some of those angels that we know their names and the Raphim or Raphael and, all, and any of those others, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, but it, it, it just kind of, it, it doesn't say specifically this, but you kind of get the idea where it just says, and I saw an angel come down from heaven. I, it, it's just plain old messenger, uh, Bob the angel <laughs> or Joe, <laughs> And it's like an added insult to injury to what is going on here. So this is the actual fulfillment of what was accomplished at the cross. Now remember, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 says, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman. Enmity basically means this war, this fight. And I will put war between thee and the woman. And between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel now in the bruising of christ's heel at calvary 
the serpent had ultimately laid the groundwork for the bruising of his head. Now, some may ask, is Satan literally bound here, or is he not? Now, the Bible is clear when it states that not only is he bound, but he is also cast into the bottomless pit, uh, which is then sealed shut. So, incarcerated is a good term for it. I mean, he can't, he doesn't have the free will to move about, and he has no more power. So, yeah, he is literally bound. Now, the one phrase, the, or this one phrase, I'm sorry, fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah in Isaiah 24, 21, 22, which says, And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall punish the host of the high ones that are on high and the kings of the earth upon the earth. And they shall be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in the pit and shall be shut up in the prison and after many days shall they be visited. So you could make the argument that high ones here uh, could represent the Antichrist, or you could say uh, that they'll be gathered together as prisoners and they're locked up, but it says in the pit. That identifies the place. And it says they'll be shut up in the prison, just like it says here. Same terminology. And then it makes it very crystal clear at that last phrase, and after many days they shall be visited. Uh, they're going to be punished for it. Now, some would think uh, that since Satan is able to be bound, he must be a literal person. But this is not true. Um, scripture clearly tells us that angels are already in chains. 2 Peter 2, 4 tells us, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. So they're being held captive, waiting for that moment of judgment, which will come a little bit later on in this very same chapter. Uh, and then in the book of Jude, in verse 6, it says, And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath again reserved in everlasting chains under darkness <clears throat> unto the judgment of the great day. So here we see that angels can be and are actually bound. Let's not forget that the angel is said to hold a great chain, not an iron chain, as we imagine in our minds. We do not know the true characteristics of this chain, other than it is powerful enough to bind Satan and hold him until God lets him loose. He cannot get loose. God has to let him loose. Now, an interesting note here is that while we are told Satan will be bound, uh, we are not told his angels, demons, and other angels will be, but apparently the inference is that they too will be powerless during this thousand year period. Okay, the next phrase, a thousand years. A thousand years. Now this thousand years represents, of course, the duration of what we call the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. And the millennium definition comes from two Latin words, milla, M-I-L-L-E, -L -L -E, meaning a thousand, and annus, A-N-N-U-S, meaning year. Mila anus is millennium. Now, there are three basic beliefs about the millennial reign. There is premillennial. Uh, let me roll down and get them all ahead of time. Postmillennial and amillennial. 
All right, now let's describe each one so you know what we're talking about. Premillennial states that Christ will return before the thousand years are established. And this is what we believe, as I say, that's what I believe to be accurate. Other people believe different, but I think the Bible supports this view best. Now let's talk about what they mean. <clears throat> now, uh, this view holds that Christ will visibly and personally return to reign on this earth. And I think chapter 19 clearly states that emphatically. Uh, Christ will fulfill all the Old Testament prophecies literally in a kingdom on this earth. This view is based on a literal interpretation of Revelation 20, a view held also by the early church fathers such as Papias, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, and Tertullian. J. Hampton Keithley III gives specific reasons for interpreting Revelation 20 as literal. Most expositors understand verses 10 through 12 as literal, so why not verses 1 through 9? The passage lends itself to solid literal meaning. There is no reason to quote-unquote spiritualize the text other than because of a bias against the thousand-year reign. If the millennial refers to today, then the passage teaches that Satan is bound today, and this in no way fits with Scripture. Amillennialists often refer to Luke chapter 10, verse 18, which says, And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven, as proof that Satan is bound. But this is a prophecy of Revelation 12, 7, which takes place in the middle of the tribulation period. Now, opposed to this is the constant and consistent view of the New Testament, which shows that Satan is very active in the present age. In fact, that he is even more active and will become more and more active as time goes along. Acts chapter 5, verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. And then 11 through 14 tells us, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. And then verse 11, For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then death worketh in us, but life in you. We, have the, we having the same spirit of faith, according as it is written, I believed, and therefore have I spoken. We also believe, and therefore speak. <clears throat> Excuse me. Knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus, and shall present us with you. Uh, Ephesians 2, 2. Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, which is Satan, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. The spirit that now worketh. That's a present working. 1 Thessalonians 2, 18. Wherefore we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. 1 Timothy 4.1 Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed 
to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. That latter times is what we're living in right now. 2 Timothy 3, 1 uh, through chapter 4 and verse 3. This is a big section, so but we'll read it. It's important. <clears throat> this know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents. Boy, that's a big one right there, isn't it? <laughs> that's everywhere. Unthankful, unholy, without natural affection. That's prominent everywhere now. Truth breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. From such, turn away. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth, men of corrupt minds, reprobate concerning the faith, but they shall proceed no further, for their folly shall be manifest unto all men, as theirs also was. But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture, again I say all scripture, is given by inspiration of God, not what man thinks God is saying, it's inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, throughly furnished unto all good works. Chapter 4, verse 1. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And then 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. It's not just about him wanting to deceive you. It's not just about him wanting to trick you. It's not about him just wanting to lead you astray. Ultimately, he wants to destroy you. That's what it comes down to. That's why sinners are in such a predicament. It's a dangerous place to be. Satan wants to destroy them. Okay, so, uh, having said that, some maintain that Revelation is full of symbolic visions that cannot be pressed for literal meaning. 
However, throughout the book of Revelation, it interprets itself. Specific explanations are given to John that explain the visions and give their meaning. Expositors are not free to inject their own preconceived ideas. Now, you will know that if you followed this podcast long enough, uh, there are places where we do uh, suppose things, uh, but I tell you, it's what I think. It's not what the Bible says. I tell you, uh, as best I can or as clear as I can uh, when I'm injecting what I think is, is basically my thoughts about it, okay? And I try to be very clear on that so that you know it's just my thoughts. And, and a lot of times when I do say that, I'll tell you to study it yourself and form your own opinion there. And it's only when things are left that they're not really, you know, <laughs> clear to us. But this is where faulty versions of the Bible come from. It's when people try and say, well, I think this is what God is saying here. Well, how do you know that? If he doesn't say it, he didn't want to say it. And that's the end of that. Now, in his vision of chapter 20, John could not view the entire 1,000-year period, right? I mean, we know that. He couldn't just view the whole thing. But he had to be told this. So how could John know that Satan would be bound for 1,000 years and then released? Further, the thousand years are mentioned in verses 1 through 4, which describe the vision. But verses 5 through 7 give the divine interpretation of these verses, and the thousand years are mentioned six times. Thus, we are not left to conjecture. The point is, just because we have a vision in a passage, we are not free to resort to symbolic or spiritualized interpretation on our own. Okay. So this is the pre-millennial view. Uh, and I'm just going to hit the other two just so you know what some people think, okay? Uh, the second one is post-millennial view, which believes that Christ will return after the thousand-year reign. I mean, that in itself just doesn't make sense, but anyway, that's what some people believe. Now, this view originated in the writings of a Unitarian by the name of Daniel Whitby, uh, who lived from 1628 to 1725. So this is not a view uh, that just come about recently. This one's been around since uh, about the mid to the late 1600s, just so you know, okay? All right, now, this view holds that the gospel will triumph over evil and not the visible second coming of Christ. This view believes that the whole world will be Christianized and brought into submission. Uh, concurrently, this is the view of the Jehovah Witness. That's what they believe. Jehovah Witnesses believe that uh, belief in God is eventually just going to overtake sin as a whole, and that the whole earth is going to be filled with nothing but Christians. Yep. Okay. All right. Now, the current state of the world, uh, such as wars and global strife and all that, uh, plus multiple beliefs of religious views along with thousands of versions of the Bible, demonstrate the error of this view. I mean, how do you get past all of this? Because ultimately for this to be true, there would have to be one religion. And not only just one religion, but it would have to be a true religion. And not only just to have a true religion, but you would have to have everybody saved. And for everybody to be saved, uh, Satan would have to be taken out of the way. And ever since the days of Genesis, uh, when Adam and Eve fell, that's never been possible. So how in the world would it all of a sudden be possible? It's 
not only that, but the Bible even scripturally disputes that view. Uh, Matthew chapter 24, <clears throat> verses 4 through 14 says, And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. The sad part of that is that phrase, deceive many. Just because they say, I'm Christ, and they just suck it right up. Verse 6, And ye shall hear of wars, and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled. Today's lesson, in today's world, for the, for the what I call modern Christian, what I mean by modern is, is the Christian that lives in this world today, is that simple little phrase there. See that ye be not troubled. <laughs> and he, go, he goes on. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places, different places. Famines, pestilences, earthquakes. We've only seen like a fraction of this. Verse 8, all these are the beginning of sorrows. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you. And you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. Again, many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. And then shall the end come. So we see Christ here was telling them, hey, look, there's going to be stuff going on, rumors of wars, uh, actual wars going on. There's going to be famines. There's going to be pestilences and earthquakes in the first place. And he said, hey, that's just the beginning of the sorrows. He said, then they're going to turn on you. Uh, and he said, and shall kill you, which a lot of them were in that day. Uh, but he's talking in the future as well. Uh, look look at how, how Christianity is viewed today. In many countries, they're killing them. Uh, in America, we've not quite got to the point where we're ostracized, but I promise you, it's coming. I mean, you you just look at some of the language that uh, the current administration is using there. It's totally anti-Christian warfare is going on. They're just not winning out yet. But the foundation's there. All this uh, carrying on about um, legalizing uh, homosexual marriages, that's against Christianity. Not just Christianity, but it's against Christ. Uh, not only that, uh, but this teaching these kids that, you know, you, hey, if you want to be a girl, you can be a girl. If you want to be a boy, you can. I, that, God says before you were formed in the belly, I knew you. Uh, it, it's terrible. And it's just going to wax worse. But even, even in backing up what, that scripture we read, there's even more scripture that goes with it. 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 and verse 13. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. Verse 13, but evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Uh, then in chapter 4, verse 3 of the same book, 2 Timothy, chapter 4, verse 3, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. You get that? For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. In other words, they don't want to hear the truth. 
we're there today. Nobody wants to hear the truth. Uh, they just flat out believe what CNN says, and despite whether they have references or not, they just believe it. Or not just throwing CNN under the bus, but CBS, NBC, ABC, all of them. They're all doing it. Uh, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. <laughs> itching ears means uh, they only want to draw people that they claim are people of authority that tell them things they want to hear. All right? Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means. <clears throat> For that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition, talking about the Antichrist right there. Okay? So, that is the post-millennial view. So we've seen the pre-millennial view and the post-millennial view. <clears throat> okay, now let's look at the amillennial view. The amillennial view, uh, their position is that there is no literal visible millennium on earth. This view holds that Satan is bound right now and that the church is experiencing the millennial presently. Now, the scary thing is that this is the most popular modern view. This is what most people believe is going on now. They believe that Satan is bound right now and that the church is going through the millennial reign. <laughs> now, the idea behind the amillennial view began around the 3rd and the 4th centuries with the teachings of Origen and Augustine. This belief denied, or this theory denies the literal reign of Christ on earth. They believe that Satan was bound at the first coming of Christ and that the present age between the first and second coming of Christ represents the period of the millennial reign. The amillennial view is further divided into two thoughts, like they can't even agree on that. The first view is that the millennium is being fulfilled now on earth and is equivalent to the kingdom of God reigning within you. In other words, the millennial reign is spiritually taking place inside of the believer's soul. Uh, the second view is that the millennial reign is being fulfilled by the saints in heaven. <laughs> I don't even know how to explain that one. All right, just put it out there. All right, uh, now here's the question. Uh, what about those who say there is no biblical proof for a millennial reign as the term is never mentioned in the Bible? Millennial reign is not mentioned in the Bible. Now, thousand years and a reign is. But in response to this, uh, Harry Ironside, he said in his commentary, and I quote, it is often said by those who object to the doctrine of an earthly millennium that the term itself is not found in the Bible. They insist that neither in the Old nor in the New Testament do we ever read of a millennium. They argue from this that the teaching is man-made, not derived from the Word of God. We might reply that the mere fact that a certain term is not used in Scripture does not necessarily prove that the doctrine for which the term stands is not taught there. The word Trinity is not found in the Bible. 
but all sound Christians admit the doctrine of three persons in one God. The word substitution is not there either, but it is written, He was wounded for our transgressions, Isaiah 53 and verse 5, and that is substitution. Where will you find the uh, where do you find the terms eternal sonship, deity, fall of man, depravity, incarnation, impeccability, which is applied to Christ, and many more of similar character, certainly not on the pages of our English Bibles. But all these terms mentioned stand for great doctrinal truths unmistakably taught in the book and are a vital part of the teaching of Christianity. So, the mere omission of a title or name of a doctrine does not prove the absence of the doctrine itself, nor does it prove that it is man-made. End quote. <laughs> End quote, I might say. So, a basic rule of thumb when dealing with interpretation of biblical text is this. And I, and I found this, and I thought it was just absolutely great. So, I'm going to say it a couple of times. Maybe it'll kind of stick in your heads, because I know some of you are in a place where you can't really write it down. But when you come to the, the rule of thumb with dealing with interpretation is this. Okay, here we go. If the plain sense of the biblical test makes good sense in context, then one should seek to make no other sense out of the inspired text for fear that the conclusion may end up as sheer nonsense. It's all about sense. If the plain sense of the biblical text makes good sense in context, then one should seek to make no other sense out of the inspired text for fear that the conclusion may end up as sheer nonsense. The Bible proves itself time and time and time again. Man has come about and tried to put his thoughts onto it with all these perverted versions of the Bible that they claim are enhanced or better and yet there's mistake after mistake after mistake found in them. You know why? Because man put his hands in it. That's why. And that's that's why I know, you may question it, but I know without any fact, any doubt, any shadow of any doubt in my mind that the King James Bible we have today is inspired by God. Yes, it was written by man, but God inspired. God breathed into the soul of that man and made him write down the word and the phrasing and all of that stuff. It's all inspired by God. It's there for a reason. And man couldn't have done it on his own. You, you use all these other sciences like numerology and things. It just fits so perfect. The symbology, I, no man could have come up with that on his own. Okay? All right, so uh, let's look at this. How about... Uh, the main events of the millennial reign. Let's talk about that a minute. The main events of the millennial reign. Uh, Jesus will reign as king over Israel and all the nations of the world. Isaiah 2, 4 tells us, and He shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Now, the ironic thing is that this is the verse that many of the Jehovah Witnesses claim to state that Christianity will end up overcoming evil in this world. Yet they're forgetting the first part of it. It says, and he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people. I mean, <laughs> be among the nations and rebuke them. 
uh, there's going to have to be a, a disciplinary action involved to come about the peace that it's talking about. Uh, then in Isaiah 42, 1, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. All right. Uh, now, the world, uh, another event of the uh, millennial reign, um, the world will live in peace. Okay, uh, again, the, the ultimate goal of Jehovah's Witness is saying that Christianity is going to overcome evil and that peace will rule and reign over the earth. The Bible makes it very clear that without Christ, you're not going to have peace. Uh, that's why it's a futile and it's an unsuccessful effort in this day and age to try and reach a peaceful agreement between Palestine and Israel. It's not going to happen. The only one that's going to be able to fulfill that is Christ himself. Now, as far as scriptural references that the world will live in peace during the millennial reign, again, the book of Isaiah, chapter 11, verses 6 through 9. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear shall feed, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And the suckling child shall play on the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Isaiah 32, 18. And my people shall dwell in a peaceable habitation and in sure dwellings and in quiet resting places. Another thing about the millennial reign is one we just hit on uh, just a while ago. Satan will be bound uh, here in our text, verses 1 through 3. We just talked about it. So we're going up. Um, it says that everyone, uh, the Bible tells us that in the millennial reign, everyone will worship God. Everyone. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 3. And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains. <laughs> And shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. <clears throat> and many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. All right. Now, having said all this, what is the purpose? Why is there a millennial reign? And, and the basic answer to that question is to fulfill various promises God made to the world. Some of these promises called covenants were given specifically to Israel and only Israel. Others were given to Jesus. Others were given to the nations of the world. And even others were given to creation. And uh, let's talk about a couple of them here. Um, how about the Palestinian covenant, also called the land covenant? This was a promise to Israel. And that's covered in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 through 10. And it came to pass, when all these things are come upon thee, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before thee, and thou shalt call them to mind among all the nations, whither the Lord thy God hath driven thee, and shall return unto the Lord thy God, and shalt obey his voice according to all that I command thee this day, thou and thy children with all thine heart, 
and with all thy soul, uh, that then the Lord thy God will turn thy captivity and have compassion upon thee and will return and gather thee from all the nations whither the Lord thy God hath scattered thee. If any of the thine be driven out unto the utter outmost part of heaven, from thence will the Lord thy God gather thee, and from thence will he fetch thee. And the Lord thy God will bring thee into the land which thy fathers possessed, and thou shalt possess it. And he will do thee good, and multiply thee above thy fathers. And the Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart, and the heart of thy seed, to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, that thou mayest live. And the Lord thy God will put all these curses upon thine enemies, and on them that hate thee, which persecuted thee. And thou shalt return and obey the voice of the Lord and do all his commandments, which I command thee this day. And the Lord thy God will make thee plenteous in every work of thine hand, in the fruit of thy body, and in the fruit of thy cattle, and in the fruit of thy land for good. For the Lord will again rejoice over thee for good, as he rejoiced over thy fathers. If thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to keep his commandments and his statutes, which are written in this book of the law, and if thou turn unto the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul. So, God has already fulfilled the personal aspects of the Abrahamic covenant in that Abraham did go to the promised land. Later, Joshua led the Israelites to claim ownership of the promised land, but they never possessed the specific boundaries that God promised them. And you say, well, what boundaries is that? It's Genesis chapter 15, verses 18 through 21. Yeah, all the way back to Genesis. <clears throat> and it says there, In the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt, that'd be the Nile, unto the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the, the Kenizzites, and the Cadmonites, and the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Rephims, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So he's not only giving him the borders, he's telling him the people that live in that land. And he's told Abram that he's going to give all that land to his people. Uh, Numbers 34, 1 through 12. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel, and say unto them, When ye come into the land of Canaan, that is the land that shall fall unto you for an inheritance, even the land of Canaan with the coasts thereof. Then your south quarter shall be from the wilderness of Zin, along by the coast of Edom, and your south border shall be the outmost coast of the Salt Sea eastward. That's the Dead Sea. And your border shall turn from the south to the ascent of Akrabim, and pass on to Zin, and the going forth thereof shall be from the south to Kadesh Barnea, and shall go on to Hazaradar, Hazaradar, I guess it is, he has a radar, <laughs> and pass on to Asmon. And the border shall fetch a compass from Asmon unto the river of Egypt, being the Nile, and the goings out of it shall be at the sea, Mediterranean. And as for the western border, ye shall even have the great sea for a border. This shall be your west border, which would be the Mediterranean Sea. And this shall be your north border. From the great sea, the Mediterranean, ye shall point out for you Mount Hor. From Mount Hor, ye shall point out your border unto the entrance of Hamath. And the goings forth of the border shall be at Zedad. 
and the border shall go on to Ziphron, and the goings out of it shall be at Hazarinon. This shall be your north border. And ye shall point out your east border from Hazarinon to Shepham, and the coast shall go down from Shepham to Riblah on the east side of Aen. And the border shall descend and shall reach unto the side of the sea at of Chinnereth eastward, and the border shall go down to Jordan, and the goings out of it shall be at the Salt Sea, the Dead Sea. This shall be your land with the coasts thereof round about. Now, that's pretty specific. That's the natural borders of the seas and things like that, Nile River, all that, uh, even to the names of the, the locations of the um, terrain features, like Mount Hor and the names of cities and all of that. But it's interesting to note that not even Solomon ruled over this particular area. Although he did reign from the river of Egypt, uh, which is the Nile, to the Euphrates, he did not hold the area from Mount Hor to Hazarina into present-day Lebanon and Syria. 1 Kings 4, 21-24. And Solomon reigned over all kingdoms from the river unto the land of the Philistines. <laughs> and unto <clears throat> the border of Egypt, they brought presents and served Solomon all the days of his life. And Solomon's provision for one day was 30 measures of fine flour and three score meals, uh, measures of meal, 10 fat oxen and 20 oxen out of the pastures, and 100 sheep besides hearts, and roebucks, and fallow deer, and fatted fowl. For he had dominion over all the region on this side of the river, from Tifsah even to Azza, over all the kings on this side of the river, and he had peace on all sides round about him. Uh, Numbers 34, 7-9 also says, And this shall be your north border. From the great sea you shall point out the Mount Hor. Remember? From Mount Hor you shall point out your border into the entrance of Hamath, and the goings forth of the border shall be Zedad, and the border shall go on to Ziphron, and the goings out of it shall be at Hazarinon. This shall be your north border. So he never got that far north. Also, God's covenant was that Abraham's descendants would have the land forever. Now, while the current state of Israel may be a step in that direction, they still do not possess the boundaries God laid out for them. Remember, Genesis thirteen fifteen said, For all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever, forever. Ezekiel sixteen sixty. Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with thee in the days of thy youth, and I will establish unto thee an everlasting covenant. Okay, uh, we're at probably a place where we probably need to stop because I got to read a quite a bit of scripture for the next point, which will be the Davidic covenant. This is a promise that God made to David and going over all these different um, purposes of the millennial reign, fulfill, fulfill these promises uh, he made to these people. Even back in the Old Testament, he made these promises, okay? Uh, so I'm going to stop there uh, because we'll run out of time today. Uh, and I just want to say, again, happy Thanksgiving. Uh, stay safe. Uh, I, I thought I would mention this, but maybe I will. Um, but on Thanksgiving Day, um, one of our kids uh, with his wife and little daughter were in a wreck uh it was pretty serious as far as the vehicles were tore up pretty bad um but thank god he had his hand on them kept them safe uh it could have been a lot worse it really could it could have been a lot worse on for, for both sides of everybody was okay there was some cuts and bruises and scrapes and things like that um but 
the cars, the vehicles did what they were supposed to do. The airbags deployed, scared everybody, but, but you know, the important thing is they're safe. And I have to thank God for that. I mean, I work in an industry where we hear about these things all the time because we deal with transportation on a daily basis. And so the chances are magnified. Uh, you never think it's going to happen to you. Uh, that's one of the key things in our safety uh, training that we have at work. You never think it's going to happen to you because you're as safe as you can be. But you have to factor in the other drivers on the road. You can't trust that they know what you're going to do. And you can't trust that they know what they're going to do. You always have to be looking out for the other person. But God still has to hand, have a hand in it. And he did in this one. And... Uh, my family is certainly thanking him for that. Uh, so just be safe, have a good holiday, and remember what it's for. Um, it is specifically to be thankful, which we should be. Uh, and I say it all the time, we should be thankful year-round. We really should. Because I believe that's one of the characteristics that God just has the biggest trouble with, is an unthankful spirit, an unthankful heart. If you walk around grumbling and mumbling all the time, um, God has no joy in that. But we as Christians should uh, always be joyful. Um, you know, th th just like he told them, uh, the, Jesus told them in the uh, disciples there when he said, hey, you're going to hear wars and rumors of wars and all that. He said, don't get caught up in that. He said, don't even think about it. You know, I I'm in control. Uh, it's got to happen. Uh, how did he word it? He said, see that ye be not troubled. That should be your theme for this week. See that ye be not troubled. If we can teach ourselves to do that, uh, because I'll be honest with you, I I watch the news, you know, and all this stuff going on about these uh, nuclear detonations and all. Uh, it is kind of troublesome, but it shouldn't be. Hey, if if they blew up the world today, uh, where are you going to be this evening or the very next instant? We're going to be in heaven with God, right? And our Savior. What <laughs> what better outcome could there possibly be? <laughs> so we just kind of have to think like that. Don't, don't be troubled. Though. He's still in control. God's always in control. And so, having said that, I thank you uh, for joining me on this podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, and I hope you continue to stay with me through the book of Revelation. And, you know, when we finish that, we'll start on something else. Um, so, coming into the Christmas season, uh, let's, let's have a good attitude. Uh, the world's constantly trying to drag us down, trying to beat the joy out of us. Uh, and we let it happen. We certainly do. I know you'd agree with me on that. Uh, we let we allow it to happen. We shouldn't. So, uh, again, thank you for joining us, uh, joining me, or the rest of us listeners. How about that? And in just learning about the Bible. And I hope you uh, uh, continue to have a great week, weekend, holiday. Uh, remember to pray for me and my family. Pray for your local church and your pastor and for the other listeners on this uh, podcast, okay? All right, have a great day. God bless you, and hopefully you join us on the next podcast.